Hi, I'm Elliot, and I'm going to be doing the Bible reading today. And right now I'm at Anstey Hill out here. So the first reading is from Exodus 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called out to him from the mountain, and said, This is what you are say, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set them before all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that, that the people will hear me speaking with you and will put their trust in you. Then Moses said to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. Put limits around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sex sexual relations. On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and, very and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the, the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you, because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 20 verse 15. You shall not steal. Good morning. A few years ago, a study in Australia looked at the change of patterns in grocery shopping when self-service checkouts were introduced. The report noted that Australians who used self-service checkouts seemed to be buying more carrots than those that didn't. 
in some cases purchasing up to 18 kilograms of carrots at once. Now, this sounds like great news. Australians are finally seeing the need to up their vitamin C intake and enjoy healthier diets, right? The problem was, of course, that these carrots looked suspiciously like avocados, for example. Some of these so-called avo thieves justified their behaviour by saying that, well, since the grocery store was saving money on staffing costs, they could afford to sell avocados at a cheaper price. Is that reasonable, do you think? Or is it simply blatant theft? How about something a little closer to home? During the crazy times of the COVID-19 pandemic that we're just emerging from, the company I work for uh, made a decision fairly early on to have its employees work from their homes. Now, being a software developer, this was an easy shift to make in many ways. And along with my colleagues, I soon settled down into the rhythm of working from home. But I noticed that as time went on, I started to take advantage of the fact that I was at home and not in the office, and I might take a break during the day to go out for a coffee or do some shopping or run an errand. I would try to then make up that time either in the evening or over the weekend, but the reality is that I didn't make up as much time as I took off. Now, as the COVID restrictions began to ease, I got back into the office and I was chatting to someone from another company in the same building. And he said he'd experienced the same sort of thing. But the way he saw it, he said, well, when I work from home, I probably work more efficiently than I do at the office. So it all comes out in the end. And it got me thinking, is that a valid observation? Can I justify that the pay that I receive from my employer each week is based on the amount of work I would perform in a week in the office. And so if I do work more efficiently from home, then I can just work less hours to compensate. Do I work more efficiently at home? Or am I just guilty of stealing from my employer? Thomas Cranmer once said, what the heart loves the will chooses, and the mind justifies. I want you to know that this morning, I'm preaching to myself as much as to anyone else. And as we look at this commandment, I firstly want us to look at how it enables us to live in the presence of a just and holy God. And then secondly, to look at how this commandment affects our relationships with those around us, the people we interact with at any level during our day-to-day lives. But before we begin, let me pray. Father God, as we open your word this morning, we ask that you will speak to us. We ask that you will help us to listen to you with our minds and with our hearts, and that we will allow your precious word to shine a light on those corners of our lives that we would rather keep hidden. We ask that you will instruct us and challenge us, change us and heal us, reshaping us more and more into your image as you designed us to be. Amen. On the surface, the Eighth Commandment seems 
quite straightforward. You shall not steal. I was raised in the Lutheran Church, and in the lead-up to being confirmed as a teenager, we looked at Martin Luther's small catechism, which he wrote in 1529. In this catechism, Luther explains today's commandment as meaning that we are to fear and love God so that we neither take our neighbour's money or property or acquire them by using shoddy merchandise or crooked deals. Now that sounds about right. Theft, the act of stealing, is taking something for ourselves that is not ours to take. Now this commandment, as we know, is part of a group of instructions which we call the Ten Commandments, which were given to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai after they had been freed from slavery in Egypt. Most of these commandments begin with the imperatives you shall or you shall not. You shall have no other gods. You shall not murder. You shall not covet and so on. Because of this, it's easy to see these commandments as a repressive law code, demands from a spiteful party pooper god who's just waiting for us to slip up so he can rain fire and brimstone down on us. And certainly, they are part of Israel's law code as it's laid out in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But to really understand the place of the commandments we need to understand the context in which they've been given. Our passage this morning from Exodus 19 is the chapter leading directly into the Ten Commandments being given. See what God says to Moses, starting at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We need to remember that these commandments were given to a people whom God had chosen through Abraham around 500 years earlier, and whom God had just rescued from slavery through a mighty act of salvation. These laws were not given to a people who had to earn their salvation. The Israelites didn't need to get credit with God. These commandments were given as a guide for a people that had already been redeemed by grace. And so our first point is this, that all of the commandments, of which today's example is a part, tell us how to live in the presence of God. And rather than being repressive, God promises that if the Israelites keep his commandments, they will be his treasured possession and a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible, and it's filled, absolutely jam-packed with the psalmist's love for and delight in God's law. Here's just a quick sampling. Verse 16, I delight in your decrees, I will not neglect your word. Verse 77, let your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. 
verse 113. I hate double-minded people, but I love your law. Rather than seeing the law as a negative, repressive thing, the psalmist instead finds tremendous joy in the law as it teaches us how we can live in the presence of God. Is that how we see God's law? Do we find joy in the commandments? There's a challenge for us this week. Now, there wouldn't be too many of us who haven't stolen something over the years, however insignificant. And so before we progress too much further, I want to look at the question, why do we steal? Now, the answer is complicated. And studies suggest that some compulsive thieves are motivated by the endorphic high they get from a successful heist, or perhaps from the respect they get from their peers when they get away with it. But for most of us, there are likely to be two main reasons why we steal. First, studies suggest that we are more likely to steal when we feel that we are financially deprived. It doesn't seem to matter how poor or well-off a person actually is. But if they feel that they are hard done by, that they are deprived, then they are more likely to steal from others. Growing up, my family wasn't rich, but we weren't poor either. I remember my dad telling me that he regularly used to pray the words of Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonour the name of my God. Now, I was okay with not being poor, but must admit I kind of wouldn't have minded trying out being rich. But one of the reasons we attempted to steal is that we fail to rely on God for our daily bread. While the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, you might remember that they needed to trust God each day for their food. Every day, for 40 years, the Israelites ate manna that was provided for them daily by God. When they failed to trust God's daily provision by keeping a bit extra aside, for example, the results were obvious. The manna kept until the next day was mouldy and full of worms. It could be said that their failure to trust in God's provision caused them to steal more manna than they needed. When we fail to trust in the goodness and generosity of God, when we feel we lack our daily bread, we are more likely to steal from others, whether it be stealing property, food, money, or in the case of my employer, stealing time. While the consequences of our actions may not appear to be as repulsive as the kept manner did to the Israelites, our sin is just as repulsive to God. Another reason we might steal, and perhaps one that's becoming increasingly prevalent in today's society, is that we feel entitled. I regularly have trouble finding pens at home. They just seem to disappear like socks in a vengeful washing machine. Now, perhaps I might notice that the stationery cupboard at work has a few boxes of pens. Well, 
I work there when I you know turn up. Uh, but surely it's my right as an employee to use those pens and to take a box home for my own use. Or perhaps when I fill out my tax return, which I need to do shortly, am I looking for any little loophole I can find to save me money and get a bigger return? After all, the government takes enough of my money already, so I might feel I'm entitled to claim expenses for something I bought for personal use. When, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus about how to live as God's people, he gives the instruction, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. In other words, Paul is saying to those who feel entitled to raid the stationery cupboard, get off your backsides and buy your own pens. Oh, and while you're at it, share your pens with others. There are so many ways we can be guilty of stealing in everyday life, and like any other sin, this puts us out of step with God. But as Paul indicates, and this is our second point, there is more to this commandment, and it speaks to how we relate and care for others. Earlier, I read part of Luther's explanation of this commandment. I want to read it again, but this time I'll read the whole thing. We are to fear and love God so that we neither take our neighbour's money or property, nor acquire them by using shoddy merchandise or crocodiles, but instead help them to improve and protect their property and income. You see, God isn't against us having personal possessions. On the contrary, he's put this command in place to protect those things which we call ours. But what he requires from us is to have a proper relationship with our possessions. While this commandment means that no one may take our material goods through dishonest means, it also requires us to use our material goods not for our own pleasure, but for the good of others. Luther goes on to say that we are commanded to promote and further our neighbour's interests, and when they suffer want, we are to help, share and lend to both friends and foes. Perhaps the best way to see this is through Jesus' teaching as he summarised the commandments. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees approached Jesus to ask which commandment is the greatest. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now Jesus doesn't mean that to love God is the greatest commandment and that loving our neighbour is a close runner-up. These two commandments together are the greatest commandment. That's what he means when he says the second is like it. Both are of equal greatness. Love God, love neighbour. As we saw earlier, the commandments were given to a people 
already chosen and redeemed by God, and by extension they have been given to us as a people chosen and redeemed by God, not to help us earn our salvation, but to help us to understand how to live in the presence of a holy God and in a community of chosen, redeemed people. The giving of the commandments was an expression of God's love, and they outlined the basic principles for a life which is pleasing to God and beneficial to all. A 2016 report from Charities Aid Foundation looked at generosity across the world. It found that the most generous nation, the country whose people were most likely to donate money to charities, was Myanmar. The nation whose people were most likely to help a stranger was Iraq. It's a sad indictment on the prosperous Western world, steeped in Christian values, when the most generous people group on earth is a poor Buddhist nation. And those most likely to help strangers are from a war-torn Islamic country. Hearing that should leave us uncomfortable and challenged. Love God. Love neighbour. We love God by trusting in his generosity and goodness to provide the things we need, our daily bread. We love neighbour when we use the things which God has given us to enrich their lives. Maybe that means supporting a local business by purchasing goods from them rather than getting the best deal from something on eBay. Maybe it means going to the service desk at the grocery store not only when we realise we've been overcharged, but also when we realise we have been undercharged. And maybe it means, and I'm speaking to myself here, loving my employer as God loves them and simply turning up for work on time. In our society today, we seem okay to turn a blind eye to this sort of low-level stealing, and it's the kind of thing that might seem acceptable, even to other Christians. But God doesn't see it that way. To him, any theft is repulsive. He is a good, generous giver, who is more than willing to provide us with our every need, if we are willing to trust him. But when we fail to trust his goodness by stealing from others, we're not loving God. And when we fail to trust God's generosity by withholding from helping others when they're in need, we're not loving our neighbour. When we feel tempted to take something that doesn't belong to us, or to withhold assistance from someone when we could help them. When we feel like chucking a sickie and having a day off. Or when someone makes an error in our favour, but we shy away from rectifying that error. Do not steal. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbour as yourself. Let's come to God in prayer. Father God, we come before you this morning in our weakness. We admit that there have been times when we have failed to trust in your goodness and generosity 
and times when we have withheld from others help that could so easily have been given. We ask for your forgiveness. In our poverty, teach us what it means to rely on you daily for our needs. In our abundance, teach us to love others as ourselves, helping and giving to those in need. Challenge any feelings of entitlement we we may have, and let us hold to the example of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who, as we read in Philippians, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Help us to love you more, and to love those around us as you love them. We ask this in the name of your precious Son. Amen.